0: Welcome to Urban Foundry. All opinions expressed by Andrew Urban, Paige O'Neill, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Collier's International, Inc. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Collier's International may maintain positions in the properties discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Urban Foundry podcast, your go-to source for urban real estate news and conversations. I'm Andrew Urban.
1: And I'm Paige O'Neill, and we will be your co host as we explore the future of downtown real estate.
0: This, this is Urban, Urban Foundry. Foundry. And we're back. Happy New Year, Paige.
1: 2023. We made it.
0: We made it. Woohoo. All right. First question
1: Doesn't that seem crazy?
0: What? It's 2023? Yes. Yeah, it does. As I get older, it just, time just slips away.
1: I know. I, I was, my parents were just in town for the holiday and we were saying, do you remember what Y2K and everyone thought the world was going to end
0: <laughs> 23 <laughs> years ago? Yeah. Yeah. 2000. Yeah. People, I think my parents bought a bunch of water and canned goods that sat <laughs> in our basement for about 10 years until we moved. They're
1: probably still there. Oh, you moved. They moved okay. Yeah.
0: They downsized a long time ago. Got it. Yeah. When we thought all of our computers would just flow up and the internet would crash and there'd no be no MTV and
1: so crazy. Who started that?
0: Yeah you know it's it's like every doomsday that's true and then the media grabs onto it because it seems like a real thing Mm -hmm. right because they because all the computers were programmed with a two-digit year Mm -hmm. so they were like well what happens when it goes from nine nine to zero zero like and then nothing happened nothing
1: nothing not even like in your (laughs) dial-up like there wasn't even a delay
0: (laughs) so what is your hope for 2023 i'm not going to ask resolutions what's your hope for the world
1: Oh, for the world? For the world. I don't, can you come back to me? I mean, I know <laughs> there's punch. only me and you in this room, but I'm trying, that's a deep question, Andrew. It is.
0: It is but What I is your
1: hope for I, the world?
0: I, I wrote it in a LinkedIn post recently on January, I think it was second or third. And I hope the world finds balance.
1: And that's a good one.
0: Gives themselves a forgiveness and seeks balance.
1: I think we have to, as a society, get out of this post-pandemic mindset a little bit and kind of reset and go back to whatever the new normal is and accept that as the new normal and yeah. just move forward.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's, you know, you can't, you got to just start moving forward Period. Right. and just, it is what it is. Yeah. So I hope, I hope the world does that. I hope people become more thoughtful and uh, seek the balance that they desire in their lives, at least attempt to mm-hmm. and I think it'll work itself out. I think it's been very reactionary for the yeah. last two and a half years yeah. to a lot of external trauma and stressors. So that's my, that's my little nugget of that's mindfulness it. for the day. I like it. I got to your intentions that for myself though.
1: I know. I was like, wait a minute. I
0: set the intention every morning, but by noon, <laughs> okay, it's well, usually
1: forward. I'm just going to like print that and put it on your desk.
0: Yeah. That's, that's a real big struggle for me. So that's what I'm working on this year is seeking balance and actually living up to my intention.
1: There you go i like it
0: so we'll find out but there's been quite a bit of news coming into the new year Mm -hmm. i know we printed out some articles here old school style because i love it because everyone wants a subscription now (laughs) ten dollars a month
1: can't scroll past a paragraph you have to pay two dollars a month for any
0: speaking of the year 2000 remember when everything on the internet was just free yes now everything costs money i know it's, it's quickly become a, a shopping mall. I sorts. got a
1: QR code today for free, though. That was pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, it's true. You probably had to give us some information, though. Probably. <laughs> I'll
1: find out in a month.
0: So the first article, and this one's you know kind of making the rounds quite a bit. number of articles out there. This one's from the New York Times. It asked the question, what would it take to turn more offices into housing? This is something we've talked about on this mm-hmm. podcast quite a bit. This mm-hmm. is impacting urban cores that have... Creeping office vacancy and old dated buildings that no one wants to lease as office space. And and it seems like there's a housing shortage. Well, there is in this country. But the reality is, is I think a lot of people outside of the commercial real estate industry think it's, it's just a matter of putting up some walls, slapping some toilets in there and calling it a day. Right. But the reality is there's a lot of buildings and a lot of markets that don't financially make sense. Right. right. And and this has been a conversation I know we've had with clients. We can sold a number of buildings, office buildings and conversions last year. And, you know, the reality is it doesn't make sense for every building, at least in this market. I know in other markets talking with other brokers, advisors, investors, it doesn't. But Paige, what is your take? I mean, would you want to live in an office building?
1: So it's, as I was reading this, I was kind of looking around our office upstairs and I was thinking this could be really cool with the exposed rafters and everything but the structure would have to change drastically I do think that it will take one person to really nail it and then the trend will catch on but it's going to take that person to think differently from a structure standpoint from a layout standpoint so how is a, a residential housing laid out typically and how can it be laid out in an office space But the need might be a little bit different. You might not need, you know, it could be a single floor loft where there's not really a quote unquote bedroom, but it's all an open concept. Kind of how we've seen office space changing in an office space. So there's no longer offices or there's, you know, no longer cubicles. It's remote hybrid work situation. So it's kind of like that flowing synergy of an office space. Can that translate to a residential
0: in, in a lot of cases, it can't, or the way people live today doesn't align to it. Right. You know, and I think older buildings like ours that we're in, the building's roughly 110 or 15 years old. We converted it, what, 2009 or so. And so it's smaller, and I think it, you can do more of that kind of thing with mm-hmm. it. But I think about something built in the 1980s, right. which has this big floor plate, you know, which is kind of the size of the f- average floor, you know, being 20 or 30,000 square feet and there's a lot of middle space. And we see this with office tenants that have a lot of private office. A lot of times those bigger floor points aren't as efficient for them if they're like a law firm and all they use is private office. Because you kind of, unless you want to have interior offices, there's a lot of like nothing left over. Right. Right, And so the, the, the concept that I kind of have started kind of coming back to is like communal common space, right? Which is common in an office, right? You'll have a tenant amenity you know, suite and lounge and areas for golf simulators and ping pong tables and all Mm -hmm. that that are shared by all building tenants. Mm -hmm. Historically in residential, at least in the United States, the idea of like having a common living room with a smaller actual dedicated living space isn't as pervasive, but maybe that's a concept to work around. Yeah. But the other, the other reality is financially it, it doesn't pencil out a lot in a lot of these markets to do that conversion so yet question yet well and the other question is is you know as more and more vacancy comes on the market and the value of these buildings declines right I And mean, there's there's more we'll call it broken glass storefronts so mm-hmm. to speak i think cities might need to step up to the plate with municipal financing to support some of these projects not only from a standpoint of property tax value increasing the value of the building which increases revenue to the government but also to offset the impact on other businesses of having less office workers on a daily basis downtown.
1: I mean, and that's something that we talk about quite frequently.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but it's really important. I think people have underestimated what that impact means in a lot of the articles, and I'm not calling any media out. I mean, I guess it's a very popular topic because they keep writing about it. Mm -hmm. No one's really talking about what the long-term economic impact means with hybrid, where... We'll say it, you know, 50% occupancy on a permanent basis. Right. That means to street vendors and merchants and lunch spots. And yeah, I I think that's going to be a long-term kind of wet blanket on CBD real estate. And until you can replace that vacancy with bodies, I don't think the problem goes away. Right. What else stood out for you in the article?
1: I think it's interesting. You know, they're taking kind of the pulse on these big cities, Seattle, New York, Chicago, but what are the Indianapolis's of the world doing? Like, we have a lot of vacant buildings. How, if it's not residential, what is it? Is it a boutique hotel? Is it, you know, again, we've, we've talked about the experience so many times on this podcast, but what is that experience? So I think it's just, okay, obviously everyone's going to want to talk about the big cities, but what about the middle men?
0: Yeah, the middle markets, it's really tough. It's because you don't have, you know, the, the residential values at, at peak peak kind of valuation so it makes the construction even more tight and like you said the experience i mean how many experiences can you have based on density right, right. so part of that it's like chicken the egg one of it is if you increase density right you can have more experiences because you have more people right and that's why big cities have You know, you think about New York City or Chicago or L.A. or San Francisco. And, you know, oh, my gosh, you know, and we've all lived. You and I both have lived in those cities. Some of those, not all of them. You've lived in a few more than I have. But you always always remark when people ask me, what was it like to live in New York? What was it like to live in L.A. or whatever? I, I always say the difference is there's always something going on. Right. But a lot of that's because of density. Right. Just by nature. There's more people to do things. And so the middle markets are going to kind of face that crisis. And I think that's where we're going to see the most innovation from municipal financing and how to support those projects because otherwise it's going to be really tough to to lift all boats, you know, and we'll have to see a resurgence in creative economic development.
1: I think it's interesting too, because I live North side, there's a ton of new apartments and townhomes. Like there's so much residential going up and my thought maybe it's because i don't leave the house very often with two kids but i'm like where are all these people coming from to fill <laughs> the need there well, is a housing shortage but where are all these people come from
0: well in every city is a little bit different in the case you live in carmel indiana which has made national press for being one of these i mean miracle stories of economic development
1: roundabout capital roundabout capital
0: <laughs> the urbanization of suburbia Right. And they've done an amazing job from a master planning standpoint, creating the density, but also having blending in neighborhoods where you know high net worth people can feel like they get the privacy and the discretion that, that they, they so desire. The truth is, is they're stealing them. Either they're organically coming. Right. So Indianapolis is growing at a higher clip than the state of Indiana. The other piece of that is they're also coming from places like Indianapolis where they don't have as many new construction alternatives. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the big thing for Carmel is their school system excellent. So, you know, if you want to move in the school district and that's important to you, yeah. and if you can't afford a home, then it's probably a great alternative. And I think that's what's driving a lot of it. And and just anecdotally, the rent growth has been extremely strong in that market because your two and three bedroom mix of units is higher. Than downtown and those people typically have children and typically they're moving into that area to go to the school system so they'll pay more
1: and i'm sending mine to a different school <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah you, you <laughs> we won't get into no, that i know we won't go there, there. <laughs> so what, what's the next article you want to you want to dive into here
1: and we have a few we can do the um this is also the wall street journal about returning back to normal so here i here we go again that post pandemic mindset but what does our new normal look like
0: yeah you know i mean i think is just came out in the wall street journal what 2 days ago and it's talking about renormalization of the supply chain congestion right and so i think some of this is the fed tampering inflation but it's also kind of maybe some future prediction on where this year's economy is going to be yeah. where things are renormalizing. I think we've gotten used to uh, higher than average demand for two years almost. And I think some of that's coming back. Also, it seems like retail sales had some serious headwinds this year. People weren't buying as exuberantly as possible. And I know the article discusses that kind of in detail a little bit. And I think that's also easing the supply. So, you know, it's Part of its supply and demand are two factors, right? So there's available supply and then there's there's total demand for the market, right? And when those things get out of balance, that's when you get shortages and congestion. So it tells me either both sides of the equation are adjusting where supply's going up, demand's going down, or it could be supply staying the same, but demand's going down.
1: Right. I think some of the supply chain issues have kind of balanced out a little bit and we're kind of level setting again.
0: Back to balance. Back
1: to balance. Look, they're aligning with your 2023 goals.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that inspired it or not. (laughs) Did
1: you you tee that up for yourself?
0: (laughs) Maybe, maybe. But I'm really anxious to see, you know, just let our listeners know what I'm looking at is I'm really interested to see holiday sales numbers when they come out. Initial indications off of Black Friday were lower Mm -hmm. on an adjusted basis than Mm -hmm. last year. I'm Mm -hmm. curious if all the discounting we saw, you know, kind of, changes changes how that number shakes out Well, and
1: i just saw there's a big retailer that is extending their after clearance sale because they still have so much product left so it's hey customers don't worry we still have more for you but it's because of these supply chain issues that were a year ago that they're still sitting on so much inventory
0: yeah and we'll see i mean i think that it has a good impact on kind of calming inflation down for the year yeah, but it also means that maybe people are are purchased out. I think the other thing and we don't have an article on this, but I think anyone who's not living under a rock at the moment, you know, the whole Southwest flight debacle mm-hmm. and, and all this kind of travel, um, you know, I think that also shows that people are spending more money, right, towards experience, right, and travel.
1: I think people are ready to get back, back to it, back to the travel, back to the experience that's our buzzword apparently on this podcast (laughs) um but they're ready to get out they're ready to leave their bubble that they've been in for a while and go experience the life aspect of it because we were just talking about life is short and you never know what Mm -hmm. could happen tomorrow so why stress just go out there and start doing it
0: yeah and and maybe that's maybe that's a sign you know for years to come with the office market you know where there's that experience you have with colleagues and others and you know at some point you may want a little bit more of that it may not be what it was pre-pandemic but the new normal right so we'll be curious to see how that shakes out
1: what have you heard a lot of your clients say recently about that because i know there's yeah there's there's some that i'm thinking of that are having a january return to office date
0: most of our clients right now are returning to office this month And
1: a hundred percent or hybrid
0: it's hybrid, but there's certain attendance requirements. And the reality is about these attendance requirements. There's no real accountability mechanism,
1: right? Like, do I get a tally mark next to my name (laughs) when I check in or
0: I think there's, there's a number of clients and prospective clients we're working with that have implemented some technology to track this, but Mm -hmm. it's not personalized to, Oh, like Paige O'Neill came in, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but it's more tracking in aggregate. All right, we expect if everyone's behaving properly, this kind of level of occupancy, and we'll know if, in aggregate, mm-hmm. these people are 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 really kind of meeting their obligation. So I think there's there's that push. The other kind of backdrop of this is a lot of companies are are looking at you know the big R word recession is on the front of C-Suite's mind. So we're seeing a lot of cost-cutting initiatives across organizations, whether they're tech or in kind of more diversified industrial industries. They are taking a little bit more of a pessimistic approach to the next 12 to 18 months. And so I think in part of that too is there's some headcount reductions that are continuing to trickle out as well that that I think in a way are, are, are kind of a wake-up call for some employees to say, hey – you know, I don't want to overplay that narrative because I've heard it quite a bit. Like, right. oh yeah, we're gonna, you know, people when they all of a sudden are concerned about their job, they're gonna start coming in more. Right. I think there's truth to that. I don't think is as direct or as immediate as people people suspect. But I think if you feel like you got to justify your existence a little bit more, you might want to seek a little more FaceTime. Right. But speaking of recession,
1: the rich session.
0: This is this is new. <laughs> <laughs> Wall Street Journal. I've never heard of a rich, R I C H session. Yeah. But this article came out Tuesday talking about the impact on high wage earners and how this recession may impact the wealthy more than the average Joe or the, for some listeners, they won't remember this, but page you well The 2008 John McCain, Joe, the plumber. Do you remember that? No, uh, there was a whole thing about Joe, the plumber. And this. I was a junior in college then. All right.
1: I, I wasn't really <laughs> <laughs> outside of my little bubble there,
0: <laughs> and and so the average average Joe or, or Jane or or non non-binary or whatever uh, inscript name. I want to try to be inclusive. I'm still learning, so please forgive me. But I think there's some truth to that to some extent as I look at the numbers. You know, if you think about wealth creation driven by housing stock over the last two years and that's coming down, mm-hmm. that's going to have a, a real dampening effect on high net worth consumption and spending patterns. And then the other reality is a lot of high net worth people have quite a bit of their income and net worth tied up in equities or other tor- sorts of securities. Right. right. So. Stock market performed last year, its worst year since 2008, right? And then if you think about it from a tech perspective and private valuation, those performed even worse in the stock market. Now there's not great data to sit there and and track like this S&P 500, but just talking anecdotally to people in the industries, looking at where their stock options for private uh, equity was marked, uh, there's some cases where things were written down 80% from the year prior. So I think that does have a psychological impact. And what I think it impacts commercial real estate is like it or not, you know, high net worth individuals are either investors in properties. So they'll feel a little less exuberant, but they also are a lot of the key decision makers in commercial real estate decisions, right? You know, the C-suite, so to speak of companies that are looking at their valuations on the equity markets and also seeing cost of debt go up at the same time to that. So like I mentioned previously, C-suite is trying to trim the fat and cut back and get a little more lean. I think we'll continue to see that impact. And I think it's a negative at the end of the day for commercial real estate.
1: Yeah. Have it, you
0: seen, you know, amongst people and friends kind of a, a tapering of optimism?
1: Not yet. I think it's, it's always kind of out there. Everyone's wondering, but Not yet. I think what was interesting about the article, it also said that the lower to middle class already kind of prepared for the recession in a way through the pandemic, Mm -hmm. you know, that a lot of people lost their jobs. There was the stimulus check. So everyone was kind of almost given a little bit of preparation for this recession if it does come, but some of the wealthiest people didn't, um, They weren't really affected by it other than I can't go to the office. Their life didn't really change on a day-to-day basis as far as spending goes. Mm -hmm. But if you lost your job due to the pandemic, that's a whole different story.
0: Well, and even the recent kind of run up in inflation in the last 18 months probably acutely affected people at the bottom tranches of the socioeconomic kind of distribution, right? Right. So a lot of those people had to tighten their belts and get more conservative and make their penny go farther or dollar because of inflation, because pennies don't do anything anymore. Um, but the wealthy, to some extent, if gas goes from $3 to $5, yeah, it's not fun, but it's not going to change your lifestyle. Right. I can still put
1: gas in my Range Rover.
0: Right.
1: Not me, because I don't drive a Range
0: Rover, but, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. But it'll be interesting to see, because it now seems to be impacting... Things that impact people's perception
1: right well and I was talking about you know the most high paid jobs in tech they're doing a lot of tech is doing a lot of ton of layoffs right now
0: yeah and it doesn't seem to come roaring back right you know
1: I thought the the median what did it say the median worker at Facebook makes two hundred ninety five thousand dollars
0: you know it's probably also Bay Area right yeah. You know, so, I mean, $290,000, depending on where you live, probably, I mean, probably puts you square in the upper middle class, but not, you know, you're not living on a mega yacht. Right. Well, no. <laughs> $290,000 isn't what it used to be. I, I guess, know.
1: I I, like I, well, say. I know. Isn't that crazy?
0: It is. It is.
1: We were just talking about graduating college because we have a college intern here and what you still have your job offer from your first job somewhere upstairs, yeah, and your salary was X.
0: It was fifty-two thousand five hundred dollars signing bonus of five thousand dollars, and then moving relocation four hundred one k pension.
1: Okay, plus you don't need bonuses. to brag. No, i pretty kidding. good. It was pretty good circa <laughs> Yeah, which is pretty good. But what is that today? What is that that college graduate expecting?
0: Yeah, much higher.
1: I know. Which a lot of. I think that also puts it in perspective. A lot of these CEOs who are used to the $52,000 offers out of college when you're like, oh, I'm expecting 85 to to 90. They're like, what? No. You yeah. have no experience. Why would I pay you that?
0: Well, when you needed them, no matter what, you paid it. But when you don't and you're letting other people go with more experience, then you might not be willing to pay it. Right. But- you know, the the generation now doesn't quite have the experience of showing up to a job interview with 70 or 90 applicants, all well-qualified for 20 jobs. Right. You know, so I, that's that's how I got that offer. Yeah. In 2010. Fun times. Crazy times. That's why I keep it around. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I, I deliberately I know, save I know, I think you
1: things. showed the art intern this summer. you like, look what my offer was. <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's good to kind of reflect back and see where you've gone, but also, you know, some of the lucky breaks you got along the way. Right. Right. <laughs>
1: My first job did not come with a signing bonus. It was like <laughs> show up to work on Monday at five o'clock.
0: Yeah, well, that was what two thousand nine. Yeah, yeah, you're you're older than me, so yeah, it was even worse back then. Two thousand ten yeah. was much better, either, but you know, it, it took a long time to get to where the people could negotiate. Your first job offer, right? (laughs) You
1: want me? Yes. When do I start?
0: (laughs) Right, right. The mind changed, (laughs) and I wasn't. I was surprised I even got the offer. (laughs) So I was just like, "All right, I'll take it." You had hair then, so you know. (laughs) I did. I did. Life was. See, that's the thing. White white guys with hair, right? That was what they say. You're the world's your oyster. Well, anything else you're you're reading these days, Page? From a from a news standpoint, anything else catch your eye?
1: Not really, not yet, but I did start a new reality show.
0: Okay. What is it?
1: Love without borders. Oh, you told me about this. I know. Another Bravo plug. So Andy Cohen, if you're ever listening, you know where to find me. I'm your number one super fan, (laughs) but it's such an interesting concept of getting set up the between the two of us. We have some single friends getting set up and going anywhere in the world to find love. That's beautiful. There's some places that I would not go. No matter if the love of my life was there or
0: not. And that's on, where where can people watch that? Bravo. Bravo TV. Is it streaming anywhere? Is it, you got to like tune into actual cable channel?
1: Well, if you have the Bravo app, you You can get it. You have the Bravo app, you can get it. I'm sure you can get it somewhere. How about you?
0: Reading a book on the history of General Electric right now.
1: All right. I don't really know where you find this free time with two kids.
0: I read from Well, you pretend o'clock. to go to work on Mondays when the office is closed. I did go to work on Monday. <laughs> I was here. Billy Powers saw me okay. all day.
1: You and Billy were escaping your we're kids. We were the
0: only ones. Yeah, we were escaping our kids. But I do find time. I read every night. I don't watch much TV other than on the weekends, Friday, Saturday. I will. I'll uh, I'll have a little binge session with my wife after the kids go to bed. But I read during the week. There you go. So it's on General Electric. kind of charts Jack Welsh. Um people that don't know, I worked under, I worked at Eaton right out of college. Has It's run by Craig Arnold now. He was COO at the time when I was there. He was a GE alumni and most of our executive leadership was GE alumni. And then throughout my career, I've worked for a number of former GE executives. So that way of thinking about management and presentation and mm-hmm. performance uh, was really embedded into me in the first, we'll call it 10 years of my career. And so Jack Welsh and Lean Six Sigma, and and kind of that method was kind of revered um, as the way to manage a business. And GE has since broken apart, kind of fallen from grace. Jeff Immelt, who was Jack Welsh's replacement, um, unfortunately has kind of gotten dragged through the mud, whether it was his fault or not. I think the book is really diving into it of what happened to GE. Um, So I find it fascinating to kind of read those business stories of kind of the fall from grace mm-hmm. because you know to me growing up and being a young business school student and even in my MBA um, the GE way always seemed like the right kind of set of tools whether you're managing performance leading a team where results over everything you know
1: <laughs> yeah what are the three things you say performance, performance appearance and, and relationship. it's
0: called the pie method so it's 70% of your job performance was based on your actual Performance. So the P Mm -hmm. image is how you're perceived by others, both your peers and above you. That's 20% and 10% is exposure. So how do you handle yourself in meetings with people much higher than yourself? And do you find ways to socialize and build relationships with those people? And that's how all performance reviews were done. Most of my career.
1: See, I do listen to you. You do. Yeah, Sur-
0: surprisingly, <laughs> I didn't ask you to. I know, but the P P I E method, I think, for me, has always been a really easy way to think about performance, and I like the fact that it has an emphasis on your job, but it also has a pretty big emphasis to get to that next level on those in- other intangibles. And you know, the other reality was is you know they had a bell curve distribution, and they cut certain percentage, and so it was very kind of tough culture if mm-hmm. you weren't a type kind of very prototypical. And I think, you know, that's the other piece of the book I want to uncover is, you know, was there something structurally wrong at G in the way it was run? Right. Or was it just a matter of, a uh, the industries that they were invested in maturing and the business as a result, not being able to change courses quickly enough. And So that's what I find kind of fascinating is kind of what, what, what lessons can we draw from that, you know, mm-hmm. think about, so I'm excited. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm probably, it's a full 600 page book. So I'm probably, I don't know, 150 into it. All right. Started it Sunday. So.
1: Okay. By the next weekly chat, I want an update. It will be. The only thing I'm reading is my real estate exam.
0: That's right. got to get it done. I know. More to come. Well, thank you for our listeners. Great weekly short. Today is January 4th. Thank you all for listening. Please come back and tune in to Urban Foundry. Thank you to our executive producer and audio wizard, Chris Spangle at leadersandlegends.net. Also, thank you to my co-host and producer, Paige O'Neill. And finally, thank you to Collier's International for providing us space to use as our recording studio in downtown Indianapolis.
1: If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to like or follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Urban Foundry Podcast.